0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading tonight comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to see Jesus, help us to see him clearly, help us to see his glory, help us to, uh, in seeing him clearly, understand who we are in him and what our lives now mean in him. We pray now that you would help us by your spirit in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, everyone. It is so good to be preaching in this room with all of you tonight. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I have not met you, I would love to meet you. I am so thankful for the past three weeks of thinking through committedness together. I'm also so thankful to Kyle and Raybo for leading us so well in thinking about our commitment to God and our commitment to one another. And seriously, there were Quite a few of you not here last Sunday, is Labor Day, it's a heavy travel weekend. If you have not listened to Raybo's sermon on committedness to one another yet on the podcast feed, do that. You will be so blessed. You will be so served. I was so challenged and encouraged by it, and you will be too. We spent those three weeks to hopefully push all of our hearts into more and more believing that there is actually nothing better in this life than giving our hearts and giving our lives to the glory of God and giving our hearts and our lives to the good of his people. That keeping so-called better options open is actually not a good investment strategy. It's not a good investment strategy because there is actually not a better option. And all I could think of for those two weeks, the last two weeks, is that famous Jim Elliot quote, that man who gave his life for the sake of the gospel in Ecuador, who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. We cannot keep our lives. They are but brief and momentary. So we might as well give those things, our lives, our brief and momentary lives, in order to gain what we cannot lose. An eternal inheritance of knowing God, making him known, serving his people, and Rabo showed us, is the way to actually become like Christ in this way. But now, after a summer break in Joshua and three weeks in thinking about committedness, we are back to Luke. And I am so glad that we are picking, up, picking it up right here in chapter 9. This sermon is really just an extension of the last three weeks. So let me, let me ask you this before we get right into it. Uh, have you ever had your opinion of someone change the more you got to know them? In a good way or a bad way? We've all heard stories of like a, a first-time date from an online match uh, before meeting the person in, in person, the, your friend or someone might be thinking, I think this is really going to work out. And then within like three minutes, you know, nope, it ain't happening. Uh, like this person only is talking about himself, herself. Perhaps this person was attractive, but not at all relationally attractive. Maybe you've actually been on one of those dates and you are thinking about all the ways to make this end as quickly as possible. Or then perhaps in the opposite direction, and maybe like the classic when Harry met Sally kind of relationship, where a relationally attractive person then becomes more and more physically attractive because you're getting to know them, their character. Or when you watch a political debate, there's maybe perhaps someone that you are interested in hearing more from. And then after like five minutes, it's pretty clear, nope, that ain't the person. But then halfway through, someone who you never really paid attention to. You thought, well, huh. I'd like to hear more from this person. Our opinions about a person can change. Our opinions about someone can advance, can develop, can deepen the more and more we understand and get to know who that person is. This changes once we have our opinions about someone change or deepen or advance. This changes our posture to that person. It changes our actions. It changes our reactions to them. This is true of every single human relationship we have. It's true of the relationships we have in classrooms, in the workplace, in our neighborhood, in civic spaces, in politics, and in the church. And it is certainly true of our posture with Jesus. Who we think he is changes everything— about who we are and our posture before him. I've said it before that the most important question that any human can ever answer, any human in time, in space, in location, in geography, in culture, in no matter what, the most important question that any person can ever ask or answer is, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Your answer to that question changes everything about your life. And yet your answer to that question is not just some one and done static answer. Like you fill in the blank one time in your life and you never change in your understanding of that answer, of that fill in the blank. It is actually an answer that can develop, can even deepen. Last year, We started working our way through the gospel according to Luke. And throughout Luke's gospel, Luke is emphasizing the unexpected or perhaps upside down nature of the kingdom of God and the unexpected, perhaps upside down nature of the king of this kingdom of God. That's why we have this picture of this upside down, what is right side up reality of the kingdom of heaven. What the world expects and demands is actually quite meaningless in the economy of heaven. And what heaven expects and demands is largely and often ignored in the economy of the world. And so as Jesus has shown his authority over sin and suffering, as Jesus has shown his authority over demons and disease and death, the apostles' understanding and their posture before Jesus has developed and has deepened the more they have observed of him, the more they have gotten to know him. And at a real high water mark in the book, we, many months ago, left off in the first half of chapter 9. We read this in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter says that he believes Jesus to be the long-promised, the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the son of David, the king of Israel who would finally come to deliver his people. To which Jesus then immediately responds, not in correction of Peter— But perhaps in a, like, tightening of Peter's prescription of his understanding and of his view of Jesus, right as he says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ of God, Jesus then says, the Son of Man must suffer, must suffer many things. The Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then he goes on to tell Peter and the rest of the apostles that if anyone wants to follow me, he must then follow me in that suffering and in that death. Luke doesn't record Peter's reaction to that. But maybe Peter is thinking, wait, so I just said, I believe you to be the Christ of God, and then you say that the the Son of Man must suffer and die, so are you saying that you actually aren't the Christ of God? Because that doesn't make any sense. David, the anointed one of God— Conquered over his enemies, not the other way around. And those who aligned themselves with David participated in his conquering, not the other way around. And so here we are. We thought Peter's confession as a high watermark, but then, like, Luke just keeps it going. He, like, opens the spigot and raises the water level even higher with what you have just heard Connie read. This is a text of the so called transfiguration of Jesus that is often overlooked often misunderstood, and I think by all of us in this room, I think I can just speak for all of us, this text is underappreciated. This text is absolutely massive to our understanding of who Jesus is. Our prescription of Jesus gets tightened as we read and understand this story of the transfiguration. And so we're going to think through it tonight in two halves hopefully, in having our prescription tightened and our better understanding of two things, the identity of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. His identity and his authority and how they play into each other. And what I want to hopefully persuade you of tonight is that seeing Jesus clearly makes obeying Jesus easy. Seeing, clear, seeing Jesus clearly makes obeying him, makes obeying Jesus easy. So let's first... Try to understand his identity, the identity of Jesus. So in verse 28, we read this. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, Matthew, in his gospel account, emphasizes mountains more than Luke, but anytime we read this word in the gospels, uh, we should have some bells, maybe even some small bells, but maybe some large bells ringing in our imaginations. When we went through the book of Leviticus, we said that the narrative of Genesis and Exodus could actually be described as a series of mountain or high place encounters with God. This is where people come to encounter God, is on the mountaintops. All of this we thought about perhaps prefiguring the question of Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, David writes this psalm and he asks, Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And so maybe with these questions in mind, who is going to ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who belongs in the presence of God? We read here that Jesus took Peter and John and James and they went up on the mountain. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Is it Jesus? is he worthy to ascend the mountain? Well, answer verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, Matthew and Mark, in their telling of this event, both use a different word than Luke uses here. Luke says that the appearance of his face was altered. Matthew and Luke both say, and he was transfigured. Hence the reason why we call this the transfiguration. But I think one reason we don't quite understand this story very well is because we don't use that word. Like we don't ever say transfigure or a transfiguration. Dictionary.com says that to transfigure is to change in outward form or appearance or simply to transform. That website, dictionary.com, like many other dictionaries, then will give uh, some well-known uses of that word in, in literature from out th- throughout the centuries. And the top hit of using transfigure or transfiguration in well-known literary context was one random Washington Post article about art and trees. The example sentence is this. Clagsbrun is known for paintings that flowingly interpret classical myths in which women transfigure into trees and flowers. Like nobody has ever read that sentence before, except for maybe Clagsbrun's mom. It's not a word that we use. This word is not a word that we even maybe really understand. But it just means to transform or to even maybe think about to morph, like metamorphosis. This may be a better way to think of it. Like, the caterpillar morphed. The caterpillar metamorphosized. The caterpillar transformed. The caterpillar was transfigured into a butterfly. Or, to use Luke's word, was altered. His face was changed, was altered. Altered was metamorphosized, was transformed, was transfigured. His face, Matthew says, was as bright as the sun. Like you need sunglasses to look at Jesus, or maybe more than that, you can't even look at the face of Jesus. There is something unusual and crazy going on here. This does not happen to people. Like, have you ever seen this happen to a person before? never. The only time something close to this happening in the whole of the Bible is when Moses came down from the mountain with a dazzlingly bright face, having reflected the glory of God. He, being in the presence of God, now reflects the glory. But this, what we're seeing here, is new in the history of the Bible. Even if we jump ahead to the end of the gospel, even after, like, spoilers, end of the story, after Jesus is resurrected from the dead... Uh, He does not even then in his resurrection appear like this. Something crazy is happening. So what is it? Let's find out. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. All right, now what in the world? Like dead men from centuries, even millennia past are now walking around with Jesus. So what is going on? commentators have given lots and lots of suggestions for what this is and why even Moses and Elijah. Oftentimes, Moses and Elijah will represent kind of like as the figurehead of the law and the prophets. So a question might be, does Jesus agree with the Old Testament? Well, yes, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets are walking around here with Jesus. Maybe even more than that. In Malachi 4, Malachi 4 says this, "'Remember the law of my servant Moses.'" The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So in Malachi 4, Moses and Elijah represent the beginning and the end, the past salvation and work of God and the future end times work of God. When Elijah comes again, Moses and Elijah are here, the past and the future work of God. This is a huge moment, but perhaps even more than that with two of the most monumental figures in all of Israel's history, both of these men, Moses and Elijah, they wanted to, in their lives, see God on the mountaintop, but they were unable. Remember way back in Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God, but God says, no, no, I'm going to, you cannot see me I'm going to put you, I'm going to hide you in this cleft of a rock, where as my glory passes by, you can see the backside of my glory. You can see like the contrails of the glory of God, but my face you will not see. And then in 1 Kings 19, Elijah goes up to the mountain and Elijah is not able to see God, not in an earthquake, not in a fire, but in a small, low whisper, Elijah is able to hear the voice of God. So both of these men, these heroes of Israel's faith and history, these representatives of the law and of the prophets, Israel's past and future, they have both longed to see the face of God. And they lived their lives and never saw it. But now here in Luke 9, with a few apostles sleeping over here in the bushes, they see it. Everything that they have longed for in their entire lives, the culmination of their lives, the culmination of human history, everything that Israel has longed for is here or as we sing at Christmas time, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Here on this mountain tonight, this is God incarnate. This is God enfleshed, God embodied. Jesus is right here living out the famous blessing of, of Aaron in nom- number six, where Aaron over the nation of Israel said, the Lord bless you and keep you. And then what does he say next? The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is here on the mountaintop, shining his face on his people. And unlike Moses, who one day reflected the glory of God, Jesus himself emits, emanates the glory of God because he is God. This is what we heard from Kyle in our call to worship from Hebrews one, where the writer of Hebrews says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Luke is giving us a picture here that if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see the weight, the beauty, the majesty of the being who has created the universe, the beauty, the majesty of the being who has created the stars and the sky, the leaves and the trees, the mountains and the rivers, the beauty, the majesty of the one who has created you and who has created me, look to Jesus. Moses and Elijah, they have come to see this. They have come to see Jesus, the God-man, the anointed one, the deliverer of Israel. But what now that they have seen him are they doing with him? They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word that Luke uses here, departure, is a Greek word that you know. The word that Luke uses, they spoke of his departure, is actually just the Greek word that says his exodus. They were speaking of his exodus. Jesus is telling Moses and Elijah about his coming exodus. Now, this could just mean his coming death, his resurrection and his ascension. How he's going to exit, how he's going to depart from his disciples. Luke is just telling us maybe like it is, maybe even euphemistically here. Like we say, yeah, granddad, he's no longer with us. Granddad, he he went away to a different place or something like that. But the word here is too intentional. He's speaking to them about his exodus. That what Moses started, Jesus will accomplish. What Moses started, he will bring to fulfillment. What Moses started, the taking of God's people out of slavery, Jesus will accomplish. Not just out of slavery uh, to Pharaohs, but slavery out of sin. Slavery out of self and instead bring them to new life, into new freedom. No longer serving self in condemnation, but instead serving God in joy. We should also point out here that this is the very first time that Moses has ever been in the promised land. Even though from another mountain, long ago, Moses up on tiptoes peered into the land, he's never been in. Now Jesus has brought him into the land and has brought him directly into God's presence. Jesus is fulfilling the Exodus of Moses, for Moses here. And so this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the Word of God. He is the wisdom of God. He is the Son of God. God the Son. Now come to dwell in and to dwell amongst his people. This moment is like a sneak peek, is a preview, just a moment like behind the curtain of the true reality and identity of Jesus. But if this is who Jesus is, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, what does this mean now for his authority? The identity of Jesus now flows directly into his authority. And so now secondly, let's think about the authority of Jesus. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. So in what may be a foreshadow of another scene at the end of this story, where three, these three dudes are asleep on another mountaintop experience of unbelievable importance. They rub their eyes. They see the brightness. And then beyond the brightness that they, they see that the brightness is actually coming from Jesus. The one that they've been following all along. The one that they've spent so many days, weeks, and hours with and never seen something like this. But then what's that? Beyond the brightness, and as their eyes focus a bit, they see two other figures who are also reflecting the brightness. Now, it's not altogether clear how Peter figures out that these guys are actually Moses and Elijah. Maybe he just realizes. Maybe he realizes, like, the gravity of the situation, it just becomes clear to him for somehow and some reason. I don't know. Maybe Jesus, like, introduces them. Like, some, like, crazy field of dream moment. Like, field of dreams moment. Like, this is shoeless Joe Jackson. This is my friend Elijah. Maybe Moses and Elijah have on, like, hi, my name is name tags on their tunics. I don't know. But one way or the other, Peter realizes that Jesus, his teacher, is walking around and talking with Moses and Elijah. In verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Mark says, not knowing what he said. Given the time of year, it appears that Peter wants Moses and Elijah to stay and celebrate with them the the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles with them. This is when Israel would once a year build some like covered uh, poles or they would cover like these tarp things on poles to then live in and eat for a week to remind themselves of when their fathers wandered in the wilderness with Moses, the guy that's just standing there. And a lot of people have interpreted Luke's explanation of not knowing what he said as just, yeah, everyone, Peter sure is an idiot, huh? He's like, hey, Mr. Moses, Mr. Elijah, you're leaving. Please don't leave. How about we build you some tents and then you don't have to leave? But here's what I think Mark is emphasizing. Not knowing what he's saying, because there are not three tents needed. There is but one. There's one tent needed. The question that the Pharisees and so many others wanted answered was, does Jesus agree with the law and the prophets? When in reality, this whole scene is actually is about the law and the prophets finding their fulfillment in this man, Jesus. Any interpretation of what has come before must agree with him. His authority, his prophetic ministry, his ministry of the law is all that you need here. Jesus is not one of many of Israel's great heroes. He stands in place and in a position all on his own. He is the final word of authority, which is exactly the point of what happens next. As Peter is trying to gather some sticks and poles to build some tents, verse 34, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen, to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone." The cloud, the cloud that descends on the mountain when Moses is in the presence of God, the cloud that descends on the tabernacle when Israel is in the presence of God, the cloud here communicating to Peter and to John and to James that when you are in Jesus's presence, you are in God's presence. You are in the cloud. And a voice comes from the cloud saying this is my son my chosen one listen to him this is similar to the scene we saw at jesus's baptism in chapter 3 where the voice of the father comes from the heavens uh, declaring the sonship of jesus jesus is the psalm 2 royal son who has been given all dominion and authority he is the isaiah 42 son who has come to bring justice to the nations. He is the Psalm 89 chosen one of God, whom God has made his covenant in and through for generations and generations. And because of all that, he is to be listened to. When Jesus speaks, you hear the authoritative word of God. When he commands, obedience is required. When he rebukes, repentance is required. When he invites, response is required. His authority over your, over your life flows from and out of his identity. He is the chosen one, the son of God, the word of God, the authority of God now over his people. Who he is then gives him the place to make demands over our response to him. Two, as he's been saying throughout his teaching ministry, to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what happens after the voice goes quiet and the cloud recedes? Moses and Elijah are no longer there. Jesus, he is standing there, the fulfillment of all that has come before him. But he's standing there, presumably now, no longer shining, but gone back to his lowly, humble, unremarkable state, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The sneak peek, the preview is over. But it was so necessary. The disciples needed their prescription tightened. They needed number one and not number two. And now number two, but not number one. The glory of Jesus helps us understand the humility of Jesus. And the humility of Jesus helps us understand the glory of Jesus. And the disciples will continue to need to have their prescription tightened. After seeing what they've seen, it will make sense. Like, we could probably guess what might happen next for these disciples, those who have seen the glory of Jesus on this mountain. As we'll see next week, they come down off the mountain and they begin arguing over who is the greatest. Like, it can be tempting to see a picture of Jesus like this in glory and in majesty and think, yes, finally! Finally! All this waiting around we've been doing. The glory of Jesus now here. He is the king of glory, and we are the people of his glory. So yes, Jesus is finally going to do it. He's bringing so much winning. We love winning. The physical and the political and the cultural victory, so much of it, it's not even funny. Let's rock and roll now. But this scene comes just after what we saw just before it. Remember Just before this scene of his glory, he says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This does not immediately sound like much winning, which continues to be Paul's theology as well. Romans 8. Where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering now, glory later. Not glory now and glory 2.0. Mega glory later. Or 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The physical, political, Victory for God's people is not yet. Though it is one day certain and as good as done because Jesus is king. He is king, high and over all, but not yet and acknowledged as so yet. And yet, here's the good part for us in the present. The sonship of Jesus, the inheritance and glory of Jesus that is emanating and is on display for those who are with him to see. Jesus now invites his people into sharing that. Remember two weeks ago when Kyle was telling us from Romans 12 that when Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is that word? To be transfigured. It's one of the only other times that word is used. To be transfigured into the likeness of Jesus. Into his glory. Jesus now invites his people into sharing his glory. How many times does Paul emphasize in his letters that those who come to faith in Christ are what? in Christ. They're united to Him, to share in His death, to share in His sufferings, and to share in His resurrection power. That the old self dies with Christ, and a new self is raised with Christ. Or as we professed together earlier from Colossians 1, that we are His people transferred out of a domain of darkness and into a domain of what? Of His light, of His shining, dazzling brightness. And so the work of transformation begins today, which as we thought about so many times before, then becomes the image of maybe the enemy prowling through a cemetery to make sure that his dead ones are still dead. And to his horror, he finds on the headstone of Cedric and of Karen and of Kyle and Morgan, he finds angels sitting on their headstones saying, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? She is risen. He is risen with Jesus. The death grip of crippling anxiety no longer has a hold on her. The power of pornography and of laziness is dead. He is risen with Jesus. The worship of the self is a worship of death and he's alive in Christ. For it is for freedom that you have been set free. Now walk in the resurrection life that you have in the Lord Jesus. And yet... Even though this resurrection power that he gives to all of his people, inviting them into walking in freedom and in life, we will never be fully free from the presence of sin. This side of his return. It is not your obedience that saves, but Jesus's, which is the entire theology of First John. The, the letter of First John, John is just over and over in so many different ways saying that you will never be free from the presence of sin, but you ought to be growing in more quick repentance— more quickly walking in the light, confessing to God and to one another our growing desire for this life of Christ until what? I think perhaps the high point of 1 John is 1 John 3.2, when John says that we all, personally and collectively, will have our moment of seeing the glory of Jesus as Peter saw him on that day. 1 John 3.2, John says, John, who was here on this mountaintop, says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. When we see Him, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We shall see Him finally and fully, unlike any way that we have ever seen Him. We will see Him finally and fully as the glorified King of kings. The glorified and shining King of kings the universe. Theologians have for centuries called this the beatific vision, the blessed vision of Jesus. When we see him as he is, when everything that we thought glorious and worship worthy, when everything that we thought glorious and fundamental to who we are in our identities, all of these things will melt away in light of the glory of Jesus. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him tonight. Obedience not only becomes easy, but obedience will one day become our only option when we see Jesus. You guys realize that anytime you ever make any decision in your life, whether it's choosing the flavor of ice cream at Coldstone tonight, Whether it's choosing to stay up and watch an extra episode of a show tonight, whether it's choosing to obey God, whether it's choosing to sin against God, we always choose option A over option B because we are convinced that option A will give us more joy. Every time we make a decision, we choose the thing that gives us the most joy. When we see the Lord Jesus as He really is, we will always and forever choose Him. Our wills will be constrained to only choose him because he will show himself to be the most glorious, the most joy-giving thing in the universe, and we would never choose a lesser option. Obedience becomes easy on that day, but our only option, because we always choose joy for ourselves and the deceptive lesser gods who promise joy, we will also see them clearly. And so it is to that day that we long for and we hope. Or that day, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, when the dead will be raised imperishable. And what does he say? And we will be changed. We will, in Christ, be altered, be morphed, be metamorphosized, be changed, be transfigured into his glory. Just like we sang earlier, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed upon his face. The King of glory the fountainhead of all joy in the universe. And it is to that day, that moment, that we long for and wait and hope, or as we'll sing in just a minute, lo, look, he comes with clouds, the presence of God. He comes with clouds descending to take his throne, finally and fully over our individual hearts, over those who have come to him in faith, over those who have come to re- or who have rejected him and to take his throne over the cosmos. And we don't wait with our feet up, but rather, what does the author of the book of Hebrews say? Let us fix our eyes upon him. Fixing our eyes now upon him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that his glory, though we do not see fully today, as Peter says in 2 Peter, though we do not see him, we love him. But it is to that day that his glory, that though we do not yet fully see today, begins to more and more eclipse out the more deceptive and weaker glory of the lesser gods, of money and of sex and of power and of comfort. That this lesser God of money or sex or power of comfort, then finally, the more we see Jesus becomes invisible because it's impossible to see. It's when these things are over here that it makes it difficult to see Jesus. We can only perhaps see a a shadowed version of him because we are seeing these lesser gods flip them around. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Obedience is easy when we see him clearly. Alternatively, obedience is real hard when he's back here, when we rarely behold him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus today, tomorrow, and for eternity. Let us fix our eyes on him, seeing him, hearing from him in his word. Know him daily. We cannot obey what we do not know. Let us fix our eyes on him in our conversations. Let us bring, us bring him more and more often to the forefront of our conversations. Let us fix our eyes on him, our minds on him, in our forgettable moments, that we might more and more pray continuously, speaking with him, asking for his help, so that while it is his obedience that will bring you into the promised land of glory and rest when we see him clearly, obedience is easy. There is more grace in Him than sin in you. And there is more joy in Him than the joy-sapping life of the self. And this can be experientially true for us as well today, coming to Him in repentance and in faith, and following Him in repentance and in faith, that His mercies are new every morning for each of us, wherever we find ourselves. And yet, this joy sometimes does not feel like joy. Sometimes following Jesus feels like death. God only prunes those whom he loves. He is shaping his people to become more like Jesus, and sometimes that takes cutting things off, that feel like death. And yet, listen to him, the Father says from heaven. He has authority over your life, whether you acknowledge it or not. But for those who acknowledge it, for those who come to him in humility and in need, they will find their life. They will find their joy ultimately, which also brings implicit warning as well to those who will not. Listen to him. To those who will not, who will ignore and reject his authority, will only find condemnation and death. Come to him. Repent. Recognize and agree with God about your life apart from Christ. Recognize and agree with God his authority, his kingship over your life, and say, yes, I've come and worshiped myself, but I've come now to give my life to him. The apostles will see more clearly, but they aren't seeing 2020 just yet. They don't yet understand what they've seen. They are stupefied like Ezekiel. They can't talk. They keep silent and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. They don't understand yet what all of this means, what this means for Jesus, what this means for them. But this unforgettable moment, A moment that Peter talks about in 2 Peter, a moment that John talks about in 1 John 1 and 3. This Jesus full of glory and of grace, this moment will have changed their lives forever. His identity supports or grounds his authority, which then demands their lives, which demands their worship. Not like we, as we confessed earlier together, as a mere earthly king, Jesus isn't. Not merely a friendly companion, not merely a problem solver but that we would honor him as the ruler of all creation over all of my wildest hopes and dreams. And so as the disciples keep coming to him to have their prescription tightened, Let's come back next week as Jesus continues to tighten their vision, as Jesus continues to tighten our vision of who he is, to tighten our vision of his identity and his authority over our lives, what that means to obey him, what that means to follow him, what that means to give him our hearts and our lives. Let's pray for his help now this week as we go. Our Father, we pray that we would... That you, by your spirit, would give us a clear vision of Jesus. We pray that he would be our vision. That we would see him clearly. That we would love him clearly. That we would obey him clearly because of who he is. Help us to just get a glimpse of this more and more. Slowly and slowly, each day in our lives, let us see him more and more clearly so that, we might, so that obedience might become more and more easy in our life. Help us to see him, help us to love him. We pray that you would use us, your people, to encourage each other to this end, that by our words, that by our Bible sharing with one another, that by our prayer for one another, that by our encouragement and even rebuke, that we might push one another to see him clearly, our eyes transfixed upon his face. Lord Jesus, we give you our lives, we give you our church, we humbly and happily submit to your authority over our lives. We pray even now that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make right all that is wrong in this world. And we pray all of these things in expectation and in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www. Christchurchabq.com.